It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. evening. I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening. I'm Amrita Myers. In today's broadcast, we'll be joined by Felipe Hinojosa to discuss the Borders Town Hall. This event, scheduled for this coming Wednesday, March 27th at 6 p.m. in Alumni Hall in the Indiana Memorial Union, will address a wide wide range of immigration-related issues in this politically charged moment that we find ourselves in, all in the next hour on Bring It On. That promises to be a a pretty nice event, Amrita. But first, the Bloomington Housing Authority is seeking Section 3 Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprises to submit bids for over $5 million for renovations being made to current public housing communities. More specifically, subcontractors and vendors are needed that can demonstrate experience in renovation and construction activities such as movers, laborers, cleaners, concrete, asphalt, masonry, carpentry, insulation, roofing, siding, drywall, painting, flooring, landscaping, plumbing, fire suppression, HVAC, electrical, final construction, cleaning, and more. I didn't hear carrying wood in there for me, so I may not not submit a bid. Here to share more on this initiative and and the day-to-day workings of the Bloomington Housing Authority are Amber Scobie, Executive Director of the Bloomington Housing Authority, and William Hosea, Chair of Bloomington's Affordable Housing Commission. To both of you, welcome to Bring It On. Hey, thanks for Thank having me. Thank you for me. having us. Can I, can I make one correction real quick? Yes, please. I chaired the uh, Board of Commissioners for the Bloomington Housing Authority. Okay. The Affordable Housing Commission is, is under Monroe County. So board, I think I, I want to get that right. Um, don't want to demote say, you. Say that again, William. You are? The chair for the Bloomington... Uh, Board of Commissioners for the Bloomington Housing Authority. Chair of the Board of Commissioners yes. for the yes. Bloomington Housing Authority. Yes. And what are you doing at role? I uh, turn to Amber for everything I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> smart, smart answer. He's being modest. He chairs our board meetings. So the board meets on the third Thursday of every month at 8 a.m. If anyone would like to come to one of our meetings. And he's in charge of running that show and uh, making sure we get to everything on the agenda, guiding the conversation among the six other commissioners. You you sent out an all call, which is uh, uh, a welcome announcement, uh, seeking help from Section 3 uh, Minority and Women women Business Enterprise uh, owners, operators, whatever, and specifically looking for subcontractors and vendors um, okay, what's going to be renovated? So our listening audience may not thoroughly understand the scope of what's happening here. What is going to be renovated? So the Housing Authority owns and operates 312 units of low-income public housing. 
And um, last year we did a strategic plan where we thought it is very important that we try to tackle renovation of those units in that they have been underfunded in terms of having the money to pay for upkeep and major renovations. Most of our funding comes from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it's just not a popular program that Congress funds fully um, or to meet the need. So there is a program called the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program um, that is um, sponsored by HUD, and we are taking <coughs> advantage of that program. And what it means is we have the ability to put together some financing through things like tax credits. Um, we can take out loans and we can ask for some grants, perhaps from the city of Bloomington um, to pay for some of the renovations. And so we're working really hard right now to put together those financing pieces. And we're looking to do about 5 million in renovations for about a third of those public housing units right now. Um, if you're familiar with um, our public housing properties, we have three of them. Um, Crestmont's the largest and Reverend Butler and Walnut Woods. So the first third that we're going to tackle with the renovations would be for Walnut Woods and Reverend Butler, about $5 million. And that'll be um, approximately 45000 per unit in renovations to do some major systems upgrades like flooring, um, kitchen cabinets, um, we're going to do HVACs, um, just really give them a facelift in that some of them have been renovated here and there, um, but we just really need to make sure that those units are going to be uh, safe and good places to live for the next generation. Now you see why I say I turn to Amber for everything, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And th let me add uh, an important note to what she just said is the timeline, uh, the original timeline under the original HUD funding would have taken about 30 plus years mm -hmm. and under this new plan we'll be able to make it happen in about four to five years something that the residents are really happy about I know that a uh, Crestmont uh, was was sort of renovated not too long ago within the last 10 years we did in phases or mm -hmm. yeah you're right so we renovated them as the funding allowed and mm -hmm. how we got the funding was very piecemeal and it yeah. just was never enough but we did what we could so about 10 years ago all of the exteriors were renovated so it really helped with the curb appeal um, we redid some of the front porches and just made it look like more modern um, kind of brought it up back from that 70s look that it had mm -hmm. um, so I think that you know little things were done here and there uh, but this will be much more extensive and much more thorough. And um, this is gonna actually units. be going into the units themselves mm -hmm. and doing, f like you said, kitchens, floors, HVAC systems. Mm -hmm. So making things much more livable for the people mm -hmm. inside the units themselves as opposed to exterior curb yeah. appeal types of things. Yeah. And I will note, we, we did do some interior renovations as well. Um, but again, it wasn't as extensive as this will be okay yeah. wow yeah and four or five years is significantly reduced from 30 plus years yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, tell me do you, do you notice that say with Crestmont uh, that the incidence rates of um, um, well let's just say crime or vandalism have gone down once the place has been renovated 
Is there a psychological thing that goes on that tenants uh, take more, uh, they have more of an appeal for where they live now? So um. things that used to maybe aggravate a lot of people tend not to anymore? I don't know if I can answer that with any facts. I did not work at the housing authority when mm -hmm. all of those extensive renovations had happened, and I'm not sure what the crime statistics were. I do feel like, you know, as the housing authority, we want people to feel like the Crestmont community or any other of our public housing communities, they feel safe and right. they're proud to live there and raise their families there. Um, some of our families, it might just be a stepping stone for them. So they just need an affordable place to live so that they can, you know, get a stable job or go back to school or take care of an aging parent right. um, or get their kids into a stable home. And, you know, sometimes it's an elderly person that's on a fixed income and mm -hmm. it's going to age in place there. So, you know, I hope that we do feel that sense of home and sense of pride with mm -hmm. some of these renovations. Um, and we, you know, try to do other safety measures like putting cameras um, on the site, um, good security lighting, our relationship with the Bloomington Police Department. We always try to work with them and ask their advice on how to handle things and keep that communication channel going. Mm -hmm. um, and also ask our resident council, who's, who's, you know, amazing council that we have right now to, you know, let us know at the Housing Authority what the concerns are of the residents and what we might be able to do as the property managers and owners um, to help address those concerns. Right. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were a couple things that were done over the years in Crestmont in particular. One, the community kitchen satellite yeah. uh, uh, office or distribution site mm -hmm. was there. And then for the longest, the, the uh, eye care clinic was there, but then they yeah. left. But uh, Boys and Girls Club, um, have, have they relocated there? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and then also some of the offices um, uh, that, correct me if I'm wrong, <coughs> William, um, oh, the office we went to visit with um, a lady from um, housing, I forget her name, um, I'm drawing me, a blank. You're giving me the deadpan. <laughs> Look, we went and met and talked with someone about some strategies for affordable housing. It was in that area, wasn't it? So okay. Okay. Well, maybe well, I can jump in we, with yeah. the yeah, question. Yeah, please. No, 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 no. Throw me a lifeline. Wait a minute. Uh, we interviewed you and Jennifer. Jennifer. Osterholm. Gosh, well, she was a previous director. Right, mm -hmm. she's right. retired now. That was here. No, but there was another lady. There's a totally different office is located over there. Not the housing authority, but afford not affordable housing. But uh, it'll come to me, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, hopefully, it'll come to me too. Yeah. Was it Deborah Meyerson? Yes, it was. South oh, Central okay. Indiana Housing I should have asked you to begin yeah. with. Why did I ask it William? It took me a little bit to. He was right. He <laughs> he looks to you too. for guidance. Okay, <laughs> but. Um, She's located in that area. That yes. that office, that enterprise, same is building yeah. over there. Yeah. Same okay. building. She okay. shares an office space with us. Mm -hmm. okay. De Deborah runs a nonprofit. Okay. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, do you have any numbers on how many um, people of color are residents in in your affordable housing units? Uh, you know, this is Bring It On. This is uh, our local African-American community radio show. And I'm wondering, I think our listeners would probably be interested to know 
um, how many people of color are going to be affected by you know this particular you know set of um, of upgrades number one so mm -hmm. how many people of color are currently living in Bloomington affordable housing and also you know you're specifically reaching out to women and minority owned businesses for these particular um, uh, you know contracts mm -hmm. which is really great too so maybe we could focus on that for a little bit okay great so we have 312 units and about 650 people living in those, whether they're adults or kids. Um, we ran some numbers the other day, and 84% of those individuals um, identified as white, and 15% of those families identified as African American, and then um, maybe 2 or 3% Native American. So that's our current demographic breakdown. Um, families are coming, moving into some of the housing. Sometimes families are leaving the community, um, but overall that's, you know, pretty consistent demographic that we see maybe moving some percentages here and there. Um, to get to the question about the women and minority-owned businesses and Section 3, uh, I'll first start by talking about what Section 3 is because yeah, I'm just let's do that throwing because all these I bet you a lot of there. people I I mean I I'm not even 100% familiar with you know that particular terminology mm -hmm. so I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners might not be either. Yeah. And uh, catch me if I am talking in too much terminology because um, running these programs and working with um, housing and urban development programs there's a lot of acronyms and Things that um, I mean, I know what Section Eight is. So. Yeah, sometimes I uh, have to stop myself and remind others that they're not always in my world all the time at the Housing Authority. So, um, what is Section Three? It describes um, a section, Section Three of the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968, um, which ensures that HUD-funded um, jobs, training, contracts are provided by to local low-income residents, um, particularly those that might reside in the public housing units um, or businesses that substantially employ them. So Section 3 is this idea that um, your business is either uh, owned by a low-income resident in Monroe County, and if they live in one of our public housing units, great, um, or they the business is comprised of 30% or more full-time employees that are considered low-income. And low income is identified um, also by HUD, and we have income ranges for that, um, which can be found on our website. So, you know, overall, it just means that um, you yourself, as a business owner, are low income, or you employ um, others that would meet that criteria. And because we're using some HUD money and federal dollars to do these renovations, it is important that that government money be spent to, you know, promote disadvantaged businesses. So in addition to um, trying to encourage contracts with Section 3 business owners, you're also reaching out to women-owned and minority-owned mm -hmm. businesses. Yes, we are. Um, we're doing that in two ways right now, and um, always welcome feedback on uh, ways to meet other business owners. Um, so the state of Indiana has a uh, minority and women-owned business enterprise uh, list, and so that's available online, and we've already emailed um, folks on that list to try to let them know. So if anyone listening out there isn't familiar but thinks that they would be eligible, I um, encourage you to go to that state website and register your business. 
Um, and then we've also been asking some of our commissioners and um, other partners that we have who we might want to reach out to doing events like this radio show, talking mm-hmm. to clubs um, like Lions Club or Exchange Club, anyone that will have me <laughs> kind of um, give my uh, spiel about this. Um, and w- we're starting this process early because we really want to get the word out. And also, if anyone is intimidated by things like Section 3 or some of the requirements when it comes to being licensed mm-hmm. and insured and um, going through a little bit of the administrative paperwork, uh, we are here to help. So they can contact the housing authority, either give us a call or email us. Um, we have a website, it's bhaindiana.net, and we have a lot of information on there and a PowerPoint slide about what it means to be a contractor that you know, bids on our projects, and once you're awarded some of that, you know, paperwork, um, again, we can sit down and walk through someone with that and make sure that they're familiar with the process and what the terminology means and, you know, just just help them walk through the specifics. And they don't have to be located in Monroe County to, to bid on on this project, right? They do not, no. Good to know. You know, this is... Uh just one of the first stops that that we're making and trying to get the word out. Of course, I've been telling everyone that I know that that we want to reach out to. We've uh, reached out to uh, several churches, NAACP, the Exchange Club, um, and and as we become aware of more organizations, we'll add them to the list and reach out to them because what we are really trying to do. Amber has set a goal to award at least 50% of these contracts to women and minority-owned businesses. And we may not get there, but... Which is uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. We're going to try really hard to get there. (laughs) Uh, I know that coming up in the summer uh, with Indiana Black Expo, uh, that Mm -hmm. may be a venue to at least get information out. Um, And perhaps hosting a fair of sorts down in Bloomington, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, uh, inviting uh, contractors to come and Mm -hmm. to learn more. Uh, With uh, Facebook and all types of social media, we can blast information out there Mm -hmm. and get a good uh, um, uh, turnout for you. That's excellent. This is awesome. I think this is one of the first times in history that opportunities like this have presented themselves. For the housing authority? For at least that, I, that I'm thinking, because the last time they, they renovated structures like Crestmont and others, I'm not sure if they if they went this route with that. I'm not sure. I mean, they may have, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, housing authorities are obligated to promote these and encourage mm-hmm. um, minority-owned businesses to well, apply. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we've, we've just been doing such small, small contracts over yeah. time. And this is such a large amount of money. I mean, $5 million estimated um, just for this first phase. That's about one third of the properties. And so next year we'll start doing the financing for the next piece, which is Crestmont, um, which is a, our largest community. Right. And, you know, that will be you know, even more money for renovation. So this is just the start. So when, when do they, all right, from submitting the bid, what's, what's the timeline? Um, submit the bid by what date was cut off, and then there's a review, and then there's an award, and then things can actually start. Do you have that information? I honestly don't. Um, typically, we um, do a bid where we advertise it publicly in the paper and then reach out to anyone who expressed interest and 
you know, some of our other contracts at the housing authority that we um, try to get bids on, it might be, you know, we issue it and it might be out for 30, 45 days and then they're due and we score them and try to award them in another 30 days or so. Um, but we are just in the beginning stages where I would say we're just trying to get the word out. And so if someone is interested in, in doing a bid right now, we just want to hear from you. We want to answer any questions that you might have. And we want to know how to contact you and what trade you're in or what type of contract you would be interested in. Um, we have a general contractor um, called Brinshore. They're our partner in putting together the financing and then they'll serve as our general contractor. So they'll be helping to uh, put the bids together. We're working really hard right now on trying to get the floor plan design finalized and kind of nailed down you know, the scope of work. Um, so I would expect that we would start putting things out to bid later this year, maybe late summer in the fall. Um, and then, you know, we want to hit the ground running and start construction and renovation soon after that. Mm -hmm. So it's really not that far off. No, you it's know. not. You're bad and I were. And the, uh, the projects manager, her name and contact information is listed in this mm -hmm. flyer that we have. She's maintaining a registry mm -hmm. of people who want to bid on those contracts. So we encourage them to call and get in touch with her now. Mm -hmm. Well, for someone who's who's listening now, and if you are if you are tuned in to bring it on, you're listening to the Bloomington Housing Authority Executive Director Amber Scopey, and the Chair of the Board of <coughs> Commissioners for the Bloomington Housing Authority, and also a voice, a regular voice here on Bring It On, uh, Mr. William Hosea, who needs an agent, by the way. Uh, they're talking about uh, the Section Three Minority Women, Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprise uh, bids. Uh, grants or opportunities totaling mm -hmm. five million for the first phase one of renovations of many of Bloomington's uh, current public housing communities. Um, you know, it, it's it's this is awesome. And the more I think about it, I'm thinking that boy, if someone were listening right now, and they need to know, okay, where do I go? What web page? What yeah, phone? Yeah, what's number? the best way for them to contact you again? I'm I'm tweeting right now, so that's why I want to know. Uh, calling our office. It's 812-339-3491. And you can ask for Amber or Rhonda. 339-3491. Yep. Yeah, if you ask for William, I'm going to tell you to ask for Amber or Rhonda. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the vetting process. Uh, bids are received, as you said, they're received in-house. Are the commissioners the sole body, uh, majority that make up the, the reviewing of these bids? Or, or what entity will review these bids? Typically, we have scoring teams of okay. staff members, and so we set forth their criteria on the bid, what we're looking for. It could be, you know, years of experience. Um, it could be by cost. So mm -hmm. the firm that is uh, has the experience and gave us the best price might be awarded the contract. Um, and so we usually set that forth in the proposal documents. So when we're asking a company to bid, we'll say, here's how we're going to score you to make sure that you're the best pick. Um, and so typically BHA staff does that, depending on the dollar amount. If it's over um, a certain dollar figure, the board might have to approve it. But mm -hmm. typically we can award those things just by going through the formal request for proposal or bid process. Okay. 
And mm -hmm. um, now I'm a resident, say, at Crestmont, or uh, you're starting not at Crestmont, but... Um, Reverend Butler in Walnut Woods. Say mm -hmm. if, if I'm at Walnut Woods and I've been notified that workers will be coming in to do repairs, now am I displaced or, or, am, I, is, or am I moved, my family and I, to an empty unit while you do work in my, my prior unit, or how does that work? So yeah, that's there's a great, great question. That's a great question. Um, so there's two situations that will most likely happen. Um, one, the renovations might be light enough that the family doesn't have to move, and we can do the renovations while they're living there. So renovate in place, and we will tell those families, those residents, uh, in plenty of time so that they can prepare and be ready and kind of understand what the scope of work would be for the renovations. So they kind of renovate around them kind of sort of thing, like mm -hmm. <laughs> like when I have contractors in my house. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. And for families who are displaced, the housing authority will... So we are required to do a tenant relocation, mm -hmm. which starts with a lot of uh, meetings with the residents, so public meetings, meeting with the families one-on-one -on -one to let them know what that timeline would be, when we expect to start renovating their unit, and when they would need to move out. Also, the housing authority covers all the cost of moving, so we will hire a moving company that will, you know, move your stuff for you. We, If you need your phone line or cable transferred, we hmm. pay for that. Um, you know, we pay for those costs for moving because it's not the family's obligation. It's something right. the housing authority is doing, and so we're responsible to pay for that. So we would move them to an empty unit that the housing authority owns, and so we would just relocate them. And temporarily? If, temporarily. Until, okay, mm -hmm. but they come back to that original unit. Once There's no guarantee that they will come back to their original unit. Actually, the rules are that they have the right to return to the development. So I wish I could promise that they would go back to their exact unit. I just don't know if I can do that. But being displaced for improvements made to your residence, hmm. mm -hmm. you do come back to a unit that has already been upgraded, not in need of upgrading. Mm -hmm. But they come back to a renovated unit. That's right. the key, right? Yeah. yeah, eventually all the units would be um, upgraded or renovated. Mm -hmm. So they would, you know, once that's all complete, all the frowning. units would be renovated. Well, I mean, just the coordination, that. that's going to be delicate because, yeah. you know, human nature yes. is that yep. I'm leaving because there's need of repair, which I've been praying for for years. Mm -hmm. I go to this temporary place, which may not have been renovated. Mm-hmm. Uh, while waiting to then move back, not to necessarily my old residence, but somewhere, hopefully that will mm -hmm. also have been renovated. Yeah, mm -hmm. because you're talking about then two moves out of their original unit to a temporary location and then back to some unit. Mm -hmm. A renovated unit. In the unit. development. But it will mm -hmm. be a renovated unit. Yeah. The same, mm -hmm. In the same development. But you're talking about two dislocate. I mean, I mean, that's a lot of moving for a family. Mm -hmm. or a senior citizen or potentially a person with mobility issues and limitations, that's a lot of dislocation and mm -hmm. upheaval for somebody mm -hmm. or a family. Or I mean, that, that's a lot yeah. that you're putting someone through. Yep, I agree. It's, it's why it's really important that we go through this relocation plan process and make sure that we have... Um, a good way to communicate what is going to be happening and also try to do the renovation timelines in pieces so that it's enough that we can manage it and do it well. 
And you mentioned earlier in the conversation that there are tenant councils mm-hmm. yep. um, working in concert with them. Um, that helps explanation. It helps with communication flow because mm-hmm. it's um, one one for those that are fortunate to receive these vouchers. Uh, there's a waiting period, and mm-hmm. I think there's what a lottery process. And the HT has done cover stories where you see people running to get in line. Um, to to apply. We have changed that. Okay. For the voucher okay. program. Yeah. yeah. Good. 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 So because that's, yeah, that's the Section Eight voucher program, yeah. our Housing Choice voucher program, and that's we've moved it all online. So the applications are taken online whenever the wait list is open, and okay. it's usually open for about two weeks. So there's no more rushing. Like it's you know the best concert ticket in town right, kind right. of reaction um, and. We also feel like having it online means, you know, no one needs to come to our office, but they might, you know, be able to work with someone from the Shalom Community Center or in their own home or the public library to, to apply. A lot of anxiety, but, you know, with change, Ooh, yeah. there is anxiety. Yep. And with the few moments we have remaining, um, I do want to thank you for coming in. And, th- and this is this is bold. This is a bold initiative, which is a welcome initiative. A lot of these buildings that you say were are circa, what, 60s? 68. Uh, 70. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if they're going to look anything like Crestmont, then, yeah, you know, Crestmont on the outside looks wonderful when you, when you drive over there. So we do want to thank Bloomington Housing Authority, um, Amber Scoby, who is the executive director of the Bloomington Housing Authority, and William Hosea, and let me get this title right, chair of the Board of Commissioners for All Things Wonderful in Bloomington and the Bloomington Housing Authority. It's almost right. Almost right. Uh, but, but, he's, but he's chair. This is, this is a tremendous appointment, by the way. Uh, congratulations, William. He is chair of the, of the Board of Commissioners for the Bloomington Housing Authority. I want to thank you both for coming in to discuss uh, this open request for bids from four Section 3 minority and women-owned business enterprises for over $5 million. The pool is, for this year, $5 million, and it can grow for the next phases. Well, it it's, will grow. It mm-hmm. will grow for the next phases. For renovations being made to current public housing communities, many cities wish they could be doing what Bloomington is doing right now, and uh, we do appreciate that. Uh, thank you both for coming. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you both so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Bring it on. Submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringiton at wfhb.org.
well, what's a bringing on show about the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin? Uh, any music from the Queen of Soul is always welcome here. Mm-hmm. At the top of the hour, we shared that we were being joined by Felipe Hinojosa to discuss the Borders Town Hall. Now, this event is scheduled for this coming Wednesday, so mark your calendars. Uh, this coming Wednesday, March 27th at 6 p.m. in Alumni Hall. This is important for a host of reasons that we're about to discuss right now. And I believe we have him on the phone at this time. Uh, Felipe, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Welcome again to Bring It On, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. And, and I have your dear colleague seated to my left here, Miss Amrita Myers. <laughs> Felipe, how are you, my brother? I'm good. I'm good, Amrita. It's good to be back on with you all. We are looking forward to welcoming you to the great Hoosier State and to Bloomington Local tomorrow. Yes, I'm excited. Looking forward to it. Um, bring your, not your winter coat, but uh, <laughs> we're not as warm where you are right now. <laughs> we need to have some full disclosure. So yeah, we're like in the well, good. upper 40s, 50s. <laughs> Oh, Look, yeah, yeah, normally no, the trees have blossomed yeah. by this point and are are in full. You but, know, we're full. I mean, but for some but reason, spring has been fully delayed. I don't know what's going on. What's normal these days? Yeah, tell me what's normal yeah. these days, and, and that's one of the reasons for this uh, for this event on Wednesday. <laughs> Can you give us a synopsis, um, Amrita, and then we'll get into sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Well, um, there's going to be a we're holding a town hall dialogue on Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. in the Indiana Memorial Union. Um, It's going to be in the largest room in the building, the Alumni Hall, starting at 6 p.m. And uh, Professor Hinojosa is coming to us all the way from Texas A&M University. Uh, uh, He's going to be joined by Marianne Camp, who is going to be speaking on issues that affect the Muslim American community and also the Muslim community at large. And we're very thankful that she's going to be talking to us, particularly given the horrifying um, events that happened in Christchurch, New Zealand last week, Um, the massacre that happened in Christchurch. She's going to be talking about um, Muslim affairs um, here in the U.S. and also globally. Ko Dokmai, who works, who's a community activist with Undocu Hoosiers Bloomington, will be speaking about the work that Undocu Hoosiers is doing to help undocumented folks locally here in the community on and off campus. And um, we have enticed Professor Inahosa <laughs> and Felipe to come and speak with us. He is not only um, a scholar, he's also an activist and has been doing wonderful things um, in Texas um, at A&M for a long time. He helped to actually bring the Latino Studies program there into fruition, um, and he and his students have been doing very good work there for a number of years. Um, and we thought that he grew up in Brownsville, Texas, and I'm going to let him talk a little bit more about that. But we thought in this particular moment with the things that have been happening in terms of um, the the border situation and the border sort of this uh, you know the craziness right that we found that f- that we find ourselves in with an administration um, crying for a border wall uh, we found ourselves in the midst of a of a shutdown and now threats to commandeer eight billion dollars to create a border wall uh, the fact that we have had now actual incarceration camps created um, to house detainees 
We've had two children die in these in these camps. To, you know, people being tear gassed on our borders, et cetera. And we thought that assaults. it was very, very important that mm-hmm. we bring people together, not only to listen to people like Felipe and Marianne and Co., but we've had we're going to have floor mics set up so that there can be an actual Q and A dialogue between the audience and our presenters. Um, and equally important, next door in the solarium will be. Uh, 55 community and campus organizations, community organizations like the NAACP, Middleway House, Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Positive Link, which does HIV, te- um, HIV testing, um, ACLU Indiana will come down from Indianapolis, a whole host of organizations, Students for Peace in the Middle East, will be set up to table. There will be a reception with food so that not only will be able to have a dialogue, people will be able to go next door and learn about all of these amazing social justice organizations and be able to sign up, volunteer, get involved, um, which we think is really, really important. Um, so it's, uh, it's a chance for people to not only listen, learn, engage, but then become activated right here at home and become active citizens and help to, help to make this place where we live a better place. Well, thank, thanks for that synopsis. I, I will add that at least two children have died. They don't At have the full number. We, we don't know how many more, and we also know that there are horrifying reports of sexual assault and abuse happening in these um, detainment facilities as well. So um, thank you for that synopsis. So we'll um, ask Dr. Hinojosa uh, your thoughts as you're preparing now to journey uh, to the Midwest, Midwest tomorrow. What are your thoughts about the uh, event, and uh, what do you hope to bring to the listening audience? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, I'm just honored to be a part uh, of this event, I think to to be able to speak about um, my home, to be able to speak about a community that has been much maligned, and I'm speaking about the borderlands from Brownsville to San Diego, um, and to be able to be in conversation with folks uh, who bring their own experiences and are talking about uh, their own context and and uh, their histories and their stories. Uh, I'm honored to be a part of that, and you know. You sort of learn as I've been preparing uh, for this uh, that writing about home or or sort of thinking about home and and how you present that uh, is hard work, <laughs> mm. um, and it's it's difficult in terms of trying to make sure that uh, I can convey the complexities of what is happening in my home community, even as I am able to sort of share the resilience and the power and the resistance movements that have emerged and that have always been there, um, you know, ever since I can remember as a kid and then going further back into, uh, into this history. And so it's, 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 been, it's been, I think, a therapeutic experience for me to be able to think about home. I've had a lot of conversations with my parents uh, over the last few weeks, uh, talking to them about uh, when our home church was a sanctuary church in the late 80s and, and even going into the, uh, the early 1990s, what it was like for them, what it was like for the congregation to have between anywhere between 100 to 300, possibly even more folks uh, at the church at one time. Um, and, you know, those are fond memories, good memories for my parents, and certainly, um, you know, it, the ways in which we remember these things are tricky as well. Um, you know, I, I lived, our church was on a street 
that had a winter Texan uh, resort RV park, which had a lot of folks that left the winter in the Midwest or in different parts of the North and would come down and set up shop. They're called winter Texans. Um, that was on that street. And just down the road was uh, 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 one of the most frequented shelters at that time in the late 80s, Casa Oscar Romero, named after the bishop from El Salvador that was assassinated uh, in the early uh, 1980s. And so just on that street, you had a whole host of ideas and perspectives and people that were staunchly against, uh, you know, the shelter and against the church for, for housing uh, people that were seeking asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, you had folks that believed it was their duty to stand up and defend and protect people that were trying to escape violence that our government was perpetuating, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and to sort of think about all these things has, has, has really, uh, it's, it's, um, it's made it, I think, all that much, much more difficult in terms of trying to sort of think about the history even as I'm trying to keep up with the news that just never stops with every single day you hear about something. Just the other day, you know, the news about the nine-year-old girl that's detained in San Diego for 30-plus hours. An American citizen. citizen. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, it, it's, not, it's not been an easy thing, but I think to be in, to be in solidarity with people um, – uh, uh, like I will be this week at, at uh, Indiana University, I think it's, it's something that I'm very excited about. And it's something that I'm taking with me in terms of the solidarity that I have here in my home community in Texas. Do, do you see a grassroots movement to register voters for 2020? Do you see a revitalized base of individuals who are saying, we are going to make some changes again at the polls? We just had a whole new crop of entering uh, Democrats uh, and who in the House have have outnumbered and and you know I know uh, Beto O'Rourke made a uh, pretty moving remarks and 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 my my co-anchor I'm going to ask for her <laughs> impression of that uh, for her facial expression maybe she wasn't too moved by that but uh, <laughs> are you are you at all you know do you see a grassroots effort up front to to get people registered to vote and then are you impressed with the politicians and, and what they're saying versus what they're doing to make some changes? Well, there's no question that there's been a movement, um, and I'll just speak about my home state here in Texas uh, and my county where I uh, live and work in Brazos County, which is just about 90 miles west of Houston. Um, and this is in the area that I'm in, one of the most conservative parts of the state of Texas. And so when um, when we had that hotly contested Senate race with uh, with uh, Beto O'Rourke um, uh, versus Ted Cruz, um, you saw A&M students that were out registering people to vote, high numbers of folks in the community that, that got the vote out. There were long lines at all of the polling stations, uh, not just in this area, but across the state of Texas. And so I think there is a, um, a renewed energy uh, to get out there and to really have our voices heard. And and it's not easy. It's, it's, there's a lot of grassroots work. There are a lot of folks that are on the ground going door-to-door, knocking uh, on doors to, to get people registered um, to get out and vote. And I think that's, that's where a lot of folks are seeing a possibility for, uh, you know, for, for 2020. In terms of 
impressed with politicians. I don't know if I'll ever be, but certainly uh, AOC, certainly uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, has been a voice, uh, I think, uh, for all of us, and a voice of really accountability, really mm. speaking up and, and trying to hold some of these politicians who seem to get away with an endless array of, of injustices and things. And so to be able to, to, to have politicians like that, I think, is, is a ray, uh, ray of hope. We'll see what's going to happen. Uh, it's going to be hard. I think there were a lot of expectations in terms of Texas turning blue uh, mm. during this last Senate race. Uh, and I think there's always people that are working to try to get us uh, to that point. We certainly have the numbers. We certainly have the demographics. But demographics aren't destiny. We have to, we have to get out and work for it. So, Absolutely true. So, Felipe, maybe you could uh, tell our listening audience uh, a little bit about this new book that you've been working on, which sort of brings a lot of these elements together, I think, in some ways, and talking about sanctuary and churches, and it goes back into the past, but it also brings us to the Midwest because your work, you know, it comes to Chicago. Right. Because yeah. I think we need to understand yeah. that these I, these issues are not just about a faraway, distant southern border. Right. Yeah, you know, um, the, the anthropologist and folklorist Américo Paredes who taught at UT Austin for many years, talked about greater Mexico. Uh, in other words, looking at, at the politics of, of the Mexican-American community, or even borderland politics, beyond just what we consider the territory of the borderlands, right? Uh, and I think that's, that's a really, uh, really important and crucial point. Um, in terms of the second book project, I've always, and I know that, that you and I have had many of these conversations, I've always because I grew up in church, because I went to church twice on Sundays and about two or three times during the week uh, outside of that, uh, church buildings, sanctuaries, uh, that space has always uh, been, been really close to, uh, to my heart. And I'm always, mm -hmm. uh, certainly since I've, I've uh, been a historian and certainly since, since I've been working in, at the intersections of race and religious politics, really thinking about the way faith communities use their buildings and their churches in order to project or promote uh, social justice, in order to um, to really live out their their faith in, mm. in in concrete ways. That though is not something that always just comes from within the church. It's not always religious communities uh, where it comes from. Uh, the book that I'm writing right now traces the history of church occupation, where you had activists that were in the late 60s and early 1970s uh, in places like Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York, working to push back against urban renewal policies that were pushing poor white, black, and brown people out of particular neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. uh, and these activists who were not necessarily Christian, I mean, they'd grown up maybe in the church, they knew their Bibles uh, and so forth, but had not been in church for a while, um, saw the space of the church saw the, the the sanctuary as a particular um, uh, 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 space where they could uh, occupy to use it as a base to push back against urban renewal uh, to establish uh, in the case of Chicago Puerto Rican studies classes or in the case of New York as well uh, to open health care clinics just like the Black Panthers were doing uh, these are Latino activist groups that I'm tracing, uh, but many of them got their ideas and were shaped and influenced heavily by uh, the Black Panthers. And so these breakfast programs, uh, healthcare um, testing uh, areas where they could get volunteer medical students to come out 
and test for tuberculosis or other things. Uh, these were really radical things. These are ideas that activists had that said, you know, the church is being used on Sunday, but throughout the week it's pretty empty, especially during the day. Uh, is there a way that we can use this? Um, and that comes out of just my experience growing up in a sanctuary church where our church was busy Sunday to Sunday. Uh, if it was not uh, for worship and for church, it was uh, for people that were coming in asking for help or for uh, bilingual uh, or English classes that, that people taught. There were citizenship classes. There was a daycare center. All of these things that all of these things have have really fascinated me over time, and uh, it's why I've devoted the second project to looking at at, at religious faith as as a political platform. Mm. You know, um, Amrita, share with with me that you came on the Ola Bloomington broadcast um, last Friday here yeah, at WFHB, another fine public affairs program that airs here at WFHB. Can you, can you share with us uh, one or two of the, the very relevant points that were brought up during that discussion? I'm curious with that community, what is of high importance as you're coming here Wednesday to share some good information with people? You know, there's two things. Number one is I think there's a real sense uh, in the community, and this was part of our conversation then, about the invisibility of Latino politics in the United States. Uh, in other words, there are all of these things that are happening, and, in and if you're not tapped into specific news outlets, if you're not listening or watching, especially Spanish-language news outlets that are the ones on the front lines, reporters like Jorge Ramos, who are on the front lines reporting on deportation campaigns mm -hmm. that are reporting on, um, you know, these, these uh, ICE, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking over and, and coming into workplaces and uh, arresting people and deporting them. If you're not into or, or, or can speak Spanish or understand those politics, you're really not getting a full view of what is going on in this country uh, as it pertains to the Latino community. And I think that's, that's of grave importance to the community in terms of how do we become a part of the Amer American political discourse? How, how do our issues sort of uh, get a platform? How can we begin to talk about uh, the ways in which the deportation regime, not just in the last 10 years and, and not just even in the last 20 years, but for the last 150 years, has operated to silence uh, Latino activists, has operated to silence uh, Latino civil rights leaders and so forth throughout uh, much of our history. Um, the fact that our history is not taught in the classrooms, the fact that you can go through K through 12, even from where I'm from, even from Brownsville, where we are 90 percent uh, Mexican-American, um, you're still getting a pretty whitewashed uh, perspective on the history. And so that's that's of uh, particular importance for uh, for the community. We, we talked uh, a little bit about that in, in terms of how, as a historian, um, you know, I'm working at not just sort of teaching the students that I have in front of me in the classroom, but also making sure that uh, my community is involved in that, making sure that, that this knowledge that we have is, is being taken to our communities and that we're in conversation, not just about current politics, but how this has been going on for a long time. Um, so that was one of the things. The other thing had to do with religion. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, my book, the fact that Latinos um, are overwhelmingly Catholic, uh, either by culture or because they attend Mass every Sunday. Um, I think the fact that I wrote a book about African-American and Puerto Rican and Mexican-American Mennonites, <laughs> a very sort of white and German denomination, 
uh, was quite appealing. Uh, Mennonites are, though, at least the ones that I wrote about, uh, are very um, uh, evangelical, pretty mainstream uh, Protestants and so forth. And so um, uh, to be able to write about a Latino community that was not Catholic and that was engaged in civil rights politics like what I write about um, uh, was pretty important. Considering also the fact that there are many strong ethnic German and Russian Mennonite communities that live in Mexico, uh, in uh, Paraguay, Uruguay, and South America. And so a lot of these folks and a lot of the conversation, people are familiar with these Mennonites in Latin America, but they're not engaging with them. These Mennonites are isolated. They live in their own ethnic enclaves, right, versus the ones that I write about here in the United States. so politics and religion, uh, you know, what else is there in terms of the Latino community? I mean, I think that's at the heart of who we are as a community, uh, caring deeply about making sure that, that people have kinds of resources that they need, uh, and then also the deep faith that, that either culturally or religiously we abide by. So, Felipe, um, you know, we have about two minutes left. Um, in terms of, you know, thinking ahead to Wednesday, if you wanted to give our listeners like a super quick kind of taste or a preview what would you what would you want to sort of tell them tonight you know give them give them a little something that wants to wants to make them show up on wednesday what would you want to tell them tonight well listen i mean i think for me what i've always been attracted to is ordinary folks that are doing extraordinary things and that's who i will highlight um uh, on Wednesday night. Um, in just the last month, there was a group of uh, drag divots or drag queens that protested in front of the border fence uh, in Brownsville. Uh, they raised uh, $650 in just two hours to make sure that LGBTQ asylum seekers are taken care of and looked after. That inspires me. That gives me hope. I want to know more about that. Uh, it's something that I love seeing uh, in my home community. Uh, and the other is um, uh, a group that's called Team Brownsville. And it's a public school administrator and a whole host of volunteers that every single day uh, take food, blankets, tarps for folks to get covered in the tents, um, toothbrushes, toothpaste for asylum seekers that this administration is not allowing to come in and to, to give their case or to make their case. They're actually making them wait uh, on the Mexican side or in some cases right on the bridge crossing over uh, to Brownsville. Um, and this team, this team Brownsville, left, led by a man named Mike Benavides, uh, is taking care of these folks. Uh, and as folks are dropped off at bus stations, whether it's in the city of McAllen, which is just 60 miles west of Brownsville, um, or whether it's at or whether you know the border patrol is dropping people off at the bus station um, in in Brownsville, and folks who have nowhere to go, no other recourse, uh, Team Brownsville is taking care of them, and they're going strictly just on donations. Uh, they're 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 funding, they're raising it, they're doing it all on their own, um, and it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I'll be highlighting their stories on Wednesday night. Felipe, thank you so much. If you want to, if you want to know more. <laughs> We know what to do. 
Our thanks so much to Felipe Hinojosa for joining us to discuss the Borders Town Hall. This event is scheduled for this coming Wednesday, March the 27th at 6 p.m. in Alumni Hall in the IMU. Alongside Felipe will be Muslim Affairs Specialist Marianne Camp from Indiana University and community activist Kodok Mai from Undocu Hoosiers Bloomington. Together they plan to discuss a wide range of immigration-related issues in this politically charged moment that we find ourselves in. Felipe, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Our thanks to Bloomington Housing Authority, uh, Amber Scobie, Executive Director of that agency, and William Hosea, Chair of Bloomington's um, Commission on Bloomington's Affordable Housing Commission, for joining us to discuss the request for bids from Section 3 Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprises for over $5 million for renovations being made to current public housing communities. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.